Formula One signed off a wide-ranging new rules package designed both to react to the financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and level the playing field in Grand Prix racing last week. But will it work? Who better to answer that question than Gary Anderson, who has probably spent more of his life than he cares to remember wading through F1 rule books? I'm Ed Straw. Gary Anderson, of course, is here. Before we delve into the main topic, as always, we have a, an opening question on a slightly uh, on a slightly different subject. This one comes from uh, one of our regular communicators on social media, uh, the account called Barnard Star, who asked what happened with Ivan Capelli at Jordan in 1993. Of course, Capelli did a couple of races at the start of the season, then he was uh, he was off, and uh, in came Thierry Boutsen. Yes, um, well, it was a very strange one, but I think actually his problem came from. His Ferrari days. He was in. He was in the Ferrari in Montreal, um, going out of turn whatever it is, one, two, three, four, where Vettel went across the grass last year, and he went across the curb on the outside there, and the car sort of tipped up, and he banged his head in the wall, and um, he was never the same again after that, to be honest. Uh, and that's really, I suppose, why Ferrari didn't keep him on. Um, but obviously, we you know we took him on and, th- and thought everything would be okay, but yeah, he wasn't the same. He, he, you know, he he never really he had doubts. He had doubts within himself because of, I think because of that accident, and then he had a fairly major shunt in um, in South Africa in the Jordan, and again it sort of rung his bell. I think again, so I think just it got to him all that stuff, and um, I think it did it did affect his performance for sure. Nice guy. I, I really enjoyed actually working with him, but I could never see that that hunger in his eyes that, that you know said that I, I was comfortable. He was comfortable where he was and what he was doing after that uh, shunt with the Ferrari. So I guess it was just one of those things where both sides realised it wasn't working and it was time to to move on. Yes, it was. You know, again, you, you have to do that, especially if it's somebody's health or whatever, because the brain's a strange thing. And as I say, I've known a couple of drivers. Luciano Berto was another one that I know very well. And, you know, he rung his bell as well in, the, in an accident at, um, I think it was Spa, wasn't it? In the, in the, and, you know, he himself at the time would not admit there was anything sort of going on. But after, afterwards, he realised whenever he come good again, how different he was during that little period of, um, of suffering. And, uh, you know, the brain's a funny thing and you've got to look after it. Yeah, very much so. And yeah, Capelli was a, a very good driver in his uh, time. Obviously, almost won the French Grand Prix in 1990, uh, famously. Well, let's get on with the topic at hand, which is the new rules. Now, you've described these rules as probably the biggest you've seen in your long time involved in Formula One, impact, technical, sporting, financial regulations. The hope some have expressed is that combined with the upcoming new Concord agreement that F1 promises will balance up the T payments, this will level the playing field and sort many of F1's ills. So how optimistic are you? Well, I think the first thing is really the last thing. It's, it's about the Concord Agreement and balancing the uh, the cost for the teams. Because, as I say, the, the, whenever you look at it simply, the cost to go racing with two racing cars, you know, a bunch of trucks or flights or whatever, people, all that stuff, hotels, everything, everything you see on TV, really, the cost to do that is the same for all the teams. So if one team's getting more money than another, they can do more work to prepare for that part you know as i say the the racing itself is more or less equal for everybody um so the balance of of payments needs to be addressed because that will allow all the teams to sort of operate with the same level of budget so that's that's step one but that hasn't happened yet and personally i'd be very surprised if it does because the people that are making the big decisions are the people that are getting the big money so i'm not sure that there's that many of them are going to run around and say okay i'll give up 50 percent of my extra extra millions just to be a nice guy 
um, especially as everybody's struggling at the moment, obviously with the, the coronavirus, you know, car manufacturers, independent sponsors, whatever, they're all struggling. So there's a, there's a level out there of, of loss of finance that's, that's fairly dramatic. So the budget cap um, is an important thing as part of that, really, because then you can spend a certain amount of money. I think the way it's done, as I've said many, many times now, is wrong because it's $145 million plus, 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 plus. Now, half the grid would love to have a $145 million budget because, you know, the, the bottom half of the grid doesn't doesn't really have that much money. And they have to get take drivers that are cheap because that's that's how you do it. It's great because it brings in new drivers and it's very, very important that that happens, but they are, you know, cheap drivers. A team like Toro Rosso, as it was off of Tory now, you know, they they couldn't go out and employ... Sebastian Vettel now, or or Lewis Hamilton, or Max Verstappen. In reality, the big boys have that opportunity to do that, and that's all extra to the budget. The top three people in the in the in the team are extra to the budget. Commercial side's extra to the budget. So, you know, if you were a top team, you spent one hundred and forty-five million dollars on your car. You spend forty fifty million on Lewis Hamilton. You spend you know thirty five forty million on Sebastian Vettel. Your top guys are earning, I don't know what they earn these days, the top three in the team probably, you know, somewhere between six, eight to ten million each, that sort of number. Your commercial department and all that sort of stuff. You know, you're now at the two hundred and high two hundred and fifty, two hundred three hundred million dollars again, the same as what they spend now. And as I say, for teams like Williams or Toro Rosso or Alpha Tori or um, Racing Point, you know, they cannot spend that sort of money. So Although it's there and the number sounds low, the number isn't low by any means whatsoever. So I think it needed to be addressed the other way around and be a total thing. Um, as I said, if you know, I'd be I'd be knocking on the door of the two hundred million and saying you've got to do everything for that. And then the companies would all have to make their decisions as to how they spent their money. If they want to employ Lewis Hamilton and spend fifty million on him, fine, that's it. Good good job. But it means you've got less money to spend on your car. And so the belief in the team would be can we make our car better for someone like George Russell to win in as opposed to making a lesser car and paying a driver 50 million because he will he's he's better than we are um those decisions aren't there so i think personally that's that's not not a good solution the way the budget cap has been done um, I'm sorry if I'm just ranting on here ed but uh, no that's that's what people listen to this podcast for so rant away um but anyway as i say the the 145 million dollar um, budget cap for me is not a hundred and forty-five million dollar budget cap. It's about probably knocking on the door a three hundred million dollar budget cap for a team that's got that money to spend. So you'll always still get the the, the them and us. As far as the uh, sporting regulations and the technical regulations are concerned, massive changes in them. Um, obviously, the technical regulations, the new car, the vis- visual new car that we've seen before with all this super duper new aerodynamics has, has been delayed until who knows. So there's been technical regulations as far as trying to um, change what we've got now to try to make it not create generate more downforce, i.e. This main, mainly it's this floor change is, is one of the big ones to try to reduce the downforce. And I think that's a pretty silly way of going about it because, you know, it's, 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 it's not cost-effective to do that. The teams will have to do a lot of research to actually make that work for them because the underneath of the car is the one part that, that – is less critical to to um, turbulence 
and you're doing away with part of that. Now, yes, okay, all those turning vanes and stuff on the barge boards make that part of the floor work, but you're sort of, you know, you're sort of bandaging up the problem, and uh, and and you're telling the teams they shouldn't be spending money on development, and then you you're introducing the, the worst scenario possible for them to change their car's characteristics, and they have to research all that again and and get it sorted out. Just coming on the sporting regulations quite quickly. I mean, obviously, there's lots of changes going on there. Um, this this sliding scale of aerodynamic development and stuff. Again, it's one of those sort of things. The the gestures there. But the level of change is not enough for me to see a, a visual change in the competitive level of the teams. You're still going to have to do a better job if you're going to catch the big boys. The big boys will not be able to do quite as good a job, but the difference is too much. And, and the percentage change that's been introduced is not enough. Is it not one of those things whereby there's there's an element of, of pragmatism? Because to get agreement on these things, inevitably the, the big teams are not going to let go of absolutely everything. So it's kind of the the maximum acceptable losses for them. And, and for example, the, the sliding scale of aero development should in the long term have a certain amount of a calming effect in terms of just trying to keep them in a slightly narrower window. Is it a, a question of that's about, about as good as was possible to, to get? Well, it's probably very true. You know, you'll never get them to agree to anything. And that's where the Concord Agreement, I think, will be a big, a big, big argument because, you know, as we, as we know, Ferrari get like $100 million more than other teams for being nice guys. Uh, I know the red paint costs a lot of money, but it doesn't cost that much, you know. So, yeah, going back to the aerodynamic sliding scale, the, the big thing is you don't want to enter just these regulations and, and controls and stuff and just have them invisible. They have to do something. They have to be identified as a solution to a problem. The solution to the problem for me is the domination. Since 2010, um, you know, Red Bull and Mercedes have won all the constructor championships. So we have got a situation where domination rules the roost. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. They've worked hard to do all that sort of stuff. And we don't want a handicap race, but we don't want a, you know, yeah, weight or anything like that to come into it. We don't want a handicapped formula. But at the end of the day, they're only capable of doing that because they have more manpower and a bigger budget than a lot of the rest of them. You know, if you take the the Red Bull scenario as an example, you know, they took over from from Jaguar, which I was involved with at the beginning, but, you know, Jaguar didn't do it right. Income Red Bull, different approach to the management, different approach to the spending, getting the people in there, bish bash bosh, four world championships. So it's all about the fact that you can't do it if you're that small. You have to be big, you have to have the good people, you have to do all that sort of stuff. So, my way of looking at it, as I say, would be to have done the manpower you have, because that's the size you are, and the points you have. And that would give you a factor of the 100% wind tunnel or CFD testing you can do. Because it's the domination we want to cut. But one, the things that that would have done, it might have meant that a team that was capable of dominating might not have wanted to show their hand too well. You know, there's 43 points, um, 44 points really with the fastest lap for a 1-2 at a Grand Prix. And so if you've got a 44-point cushion to the team behind you, is it better to just let that happen? You know, do you want to make it a 60-point cushion? Because 60 points means you pay a bigger price for your wind tunnel, the loss in your wind tunnel. So you might play a strategic game and just keep that points to a minimum, um, that points advantage to a minimum to the next best team. 
And then one day you have a bad day. And suddenly, bish bash, you're not, you're not 44 points ahead anymore. You're 20 or 10. And then suddenly the next race you haven't got a great day. So you, you, you could see people playing a little bit of strategic games with it a bit to try to make sure they don't score too many points, but also tripping up because of that. So I think just having a, a blanket 2.5% as it is for 2021 um, across the championship positions is wrong because if a team has a lucky day, and if, if you look at last year, you know, um, Toro Rosso, as it was then, scored 23 points in Germany. You know, the average over the 21 races last year for Toro Rosso was four. And yet they had a payday of 23 points in Germany. And that's what, that, you know, gives them a championship position. Um, it gives them basically a, a, you know, a championship position. So they lose two and a half percent to Racing Point. But if it was done on manpower and points, then it would be, it would be a little bit different. It wouldn't just be that blanket two and a half percent. It would be a condition of how many men you, how many manpower you have, and as I say, the points difference. So I think there's a better way of doing it, but they've gone that route. The positive thing about this this sliding scale is that at least because because we were talking about this on on our other podcast, the Race F1 podcast with Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell, and obviously the thing that is is very positive about this is it's not a kind of blunt performance balancing thing it's not success ballast for example which at least it at least it means that if if you know your team does a better job with the amount of aero testing it's got than say my team which isn't as well run and well organized and obviously doesn't have as uh, a genius technical director like yourself at, at the helm obviously you you can still overcome that and a, a good team is still a good team so i guess from that perspective it's even if it's not the perfect solution it's preferable to those blunt instrument penalties where it's just you get made slower. Yeah, I agree. The, the, the problem the problem for me is the fact that the good teams are good teams for a reason. The good teams are good teams because they work efficiently in all areas of the, of the car, whether that's development, design, optimization, mechanics, reliability. You know, everything is done and dusted in a better way to a smaller team with lesser people just because a smaller team with lesser people just can't, can't keep up with it. So... Uh, it is. It isn't as yeah. It isn't as blunt as you say as a as a, a weight um, penalty. And the end of the day, the team can overcome those hurdles. Um, but the problem is that the teams that will have the hurdles will be the good teams. You know, the teams that will not have the hurdles are, are the teams that are not winning at the minute. So they can't do any better than what they've got now. And I, I as I say, I'd love to know um, how much wind tunnel time some of the teams in the back half of the championship actually did relative to the, the restrictions. Because I, I doubt if any of them actually sort of just rung it up to the maximum and, and you know, knocked on the door of, of, of too much. I think it's, it's very difficult to do that. So are they actually going to get a benefit from having an extra two and a half, five or whatever percentage over another team? That's the only thing I'll tell us is if how much they used in, 20, in 2019 or 2020 as it's going to be. Um, it's one of those sort of situations where now with the period of coronavirus, which most teams have been off for about six or seven weeks, you know, all that wind tunnel percentage time, um, you, you couldn't run it because there's nobody working there now. So, you know, you, you're going to be piling a lot more into the, the last part of this season um, for, for 2021. So it's going to be a difficult one to sort of place because of the change now, with, as I say, with people coming back to work how much attention they do to the wind tunnel and try and catch up that lost time. 
or whether or not the FIA will come up with something to say, no, that lost time's lost, basically. But um, I I think it, it's wrong to, to change these regulations and then be invisible to the public. Um, and it's not it's not a handicap formula, it's an equivalence formula. The equivalence formula is just the fact that, you know, you go and play football, and if you've got 11 people on one side and six on the other, who's going to get beaten, you know? And if those 11 people are then, you know, premiership stars, and the, the six people on the other side are also, you know, um, good sort of second-tier footballers, then who's going to get beaten? And that's what Formula One is at the minute. We've got, you know, the big teams have got their 11 star footballers and the money to pay them. And the small teams have got half a dozen pretty good footballers, not star footballers, um, because they can't afford the big boys. So, you know, we've got the exact same scenario. What's, who's going to win that football match? You know, it's, it's, it's just it's pretty black and white to me. I'm pleased to hear we've got we've got more insistent wildlife on this podcast. Is that a bird I can hear in the background that's just that's really chirping in? Yes, I've got the my patio doors are open to the world. Um, it's been really hot here today. Yeah, it's definitely a day for the uh, for the patio doors to be open. I'd agree with birds that. Birds are chirping very loudly out there. We do feed the birds and we do love them. There's, there's lots of them out there. We had one in the living room the other day. We had to get get out of here. Came in through the night through a window. So uh, that was a bit of an ex- exciting episode getting out the, out the door again. You should have filmed that. That would have made a good video we could have put out. <laughs> <laughs> it was a high-speed high speed bird. Little Robin it was. Little Robin. It was lovely, little Robin. Obviously, there's there's a few other things. Now, you're a big fan of simplicity in the regs. And in the, the future regs, we've now got uh, listed team components. We've got standard supply components. We've got prescribed design components, transferable components, open source components. So that's nice and simple to sum up, isn't it? It's amazing. Uh, I mean, I, I, I sit and read them now and I think, what is this? And, and How does it get to this level, you know? I, whenever I started to do the Jordan, basically the regulations, um, as I've said a few times, you could bring them home at night, you could have a read through them, and you pretty much got them in your head. There was probably 10, maybe 15 pages altogether. Um, and half of that was important. The other half wasn't really that important. Um no, there's no hope. There is no hope whatsoever. You just have to have lawyers weeding through it to find out, you know, how it's written, legalese, really. I think that's a bit sad, to be honest, because it's it's not now about the engineer sitting down there and finding this little grey area, this little opening that might give them a chance to exploit something. You know, whenever you go through and you, you take things like the, the six-wheel turl, the, the Brabham fan car, the, you know, little sliding skirts, um... The, the, you know, the hydraulic suspension on the Brabham where they could lower the car into the ground after the ride height was, you know, defined and stuff. Those were all areas where you wanted to find those little loopholes and they were good stuff. Um, but now it's just, it's it's just so, I don't know, prescriptive, I suppose. It's just, what do you do with all that stuff? I mean, I, I understand that it's, it's, it's about controlling stuff. But surely, all, overall, the whole thing can be done with a with a financial cap on it somehow to allow it to work properly. To, to, to actually define all these things, these bits and pieces, it would be a nightmare now as a, as a, a team technically to just be gun ho about something. You can't you can't even think about being gun ho. And then and then you have to ask the question: Can can it be policed properly as well? You know that that's the big thing because there's there's now so much of it to police. 
um, that although the teams are maybe spending less money, the FIA, to, to actually buy into this and police it, they must have an enormous group of people available. You know, if this all goes wrong with some team or a couple of teams because they've done something wrong, the manpower you're going to have to put behind fighting it is, is horrible. So I think I think the rules are wrong in doing all that stuff. They just have to open them up a little bit and allow not open the rules up to make, spend more money, but just allow a little bit more sort of grey areas to be approached. Um, with a view to the fact that you know if you want to go into a grey area and it's proven to be a grey area, then maybe at the end of the day, you know, you have a there is a time that you you know the rules will be looked at and tightened up every six months or every six races or something just to lose those little bits. And like the double diffuser, you know, it was a grey area that three teams went into. Um, a couple of them did it very, very well. Um, and, you know, it was fought for a while, accepted, and then it was there for the year. But at the end of the day, it's one of those sort of situations where, you know, you could put in something that if something like that does come up again, and use that as an example, that the team that found it could use it for X races, and then it would be have to be replaced and i guess the hope is that these these regulations as they are that if they if they work combined with the technical regs for 2022 that are hugely prescriptive probably overly prescriptive i guess the hope is that f1 kind of finds itself in a position where the teams are gradually evolved to be at a level where they're all able to spend the same amount and have similar facilities and then you can open up the rules a bit and expect the cost cap to to work now some people have argued quite strongly that's that's what should ha- happen. I mean, I can see why there might be a pathway that gets to that, but I'm I'm always quite cynical about these things because I've seen in the past, and you'd have seen far more than me, it's quite rare for changes. And although these are in, in precedented scope, given the situation, it is still quite rare for the changes to have the hope for effect. So is, is how do you feel? Could it be a nice stepping stone towards that? Or do you think it's just going to be, we'll go in this direction now, and then four years down the line, everyone will be saying, oh, we need to change all these things we did, because that's the cycle we get into, isn't it? <laughs> you get a load of rule changes, and then you say, what do we do that for? Let's do something else. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, out of everything I'm seeing here, I don't see anything that will change the visual side of Formula One, because the cars are still going to have incredible aerodynamic forces working on them and when you follow another car it's going to have an effect on it whether you know how big that effect is 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 changing slightly but it's still going to have a major effect on it the cars are you know they're big they're wide they break late they're very quick um the corner speed is incredible um you know whenever you're talking about breaking out breaking another car you in in theory you have to you know the car is like four and a half meters long nowadays so, you know, you have to break five, maybe eight metres later than the, than the car you're going to try and race with. And the cars are stopping from 340 k's down to 80 k's in, in 100 metres. So, you know, you're talking about percentage. Whenever you're talking about that, you have to break five or eight percent later than the guy beside you. Those, those things just are not going to happen. And, you know, equivalence formula as far as... Um, budgets concerned, all that sort of stuff it, it's never going to be you know the cars are now so reliable as well that the you know they, they finish races in the past you know that was one of the things that used to mix it all up reliability was was not so good by any means so I, i'm not i'm not sure that any of these regulations personally um are going to do anything as you as you yourself said you'd be surprised if it all works in three or four years time we'll see them all changing 
Um, I would be surprised if it is three or four years before we see them all changing. I mean, I don't want to be negative about it, but at the end of the day, Formula One is it's a show. And that show has to go on. Um, it's a huge employment empire for, for many, many, many people. Um, and everything you're doing at the minute is actually going to cost jobs, which is not you know a good solution to anything. But it, it's reality. Each team, I'm sure, has a bit of dead wood to start with. It's not all good people that are going to go. Um, there's a few people, I'm sure, um, that are heading for retirement or whatever, or would like a change of life or whatever anyway. Um, and this might spur that all on. But I don't see anything that this that's coming now that I see that will really sort of say, oh, yeah, that's the way to go. That's a, that's a good thing. That's a big change. That'll, that'll make a massive difference. Um, because the, the money's no different. The spend, the, the budget cap is no different. Um, and as I say, the, the wind tunnel time thing, it's, it's not a big enough change. You know, as I say, it's always going to be the top teams. It's going to be 2.5% between them that's going to alter it. That's that's not enough, you know. That's not what it's all about, and that two and a half percent is a bit difficult because the thing is, you want to make sure that you can research things properly um, and make sure when you get to the track they work. And that two and a half percent is is something that's going to, you know, reduce that a little bit, so you have more risk level on the parts you're taking to the track. Um, and unfortunately, before you get to the track, you have to spend the money on them, so it could very easily, you know, cost you a lot more money by reducing this this amount of wind tunnel time. Um, uh, so it can take you the wrong direction as well. So, uh, no, I haven't seen anything that I would sort of buy into and say, right, okay, we've, we've really done a good thing here. Just tagged on to the end of this, this isn't part of the rules that have been that have been signed off, but it is something that's been talked about now because obviously we've got these double-header pl- races planned, uh, Austria, Silverstone, and the suggestion, the discussion has been that you, they could run a reverse grid qualifying race on the Saturday to decide the grid for the main Grand Prix. Primary motiv- motivation is to stop that the second race just replicating the the first few leading teams don't like the idea mercedes in particular apparently don't and quite a few fans aren't keen what what do you think of that do you think this is a good opportunity to try that well um step one you know to try and do something like that in austria after we've had one race is wrong because the 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 championship points will be just from one event so anything could have happened there um Hopefully it'll be a bit of a mix-up, but never mind. So to try and do that for race two in Austria would, you know, be just reversing the the finishing result of the first race the weekend before it. So I don't think that's fair. Um, I think that what I'd like to see them experiment with on the on the two race weekends as such, or the two weekends at the same track, is the first weekend having the normal. Um, running procedure as such a three-day event and then the second weekend being a two-day event was just simply a practice session and qualifying on the saturday and race on the sunday i don't think you should squeeze it to be in a one-day event like a sunday event just i think a two-day event is better because we all want to see that qualifying and um and the race um and i think most teams after taking the cars apart and that would like to get at least a one-hour practice session on the saturday morning so the procedure would be for the first weekend for me, exactly as it is now, the three-day three weekend, practice Friday, practice Saturday morning, qualify Saturday afternoon, race Sunday. The second weekend would be just Saturday, you practice in the morning, you have that hour, Saturday morning you have that hour, qualify in the afternoon, race on Sunday. Because you don't need to be thrashing around there. That'll save a bit of mileage, it'll save a bit of time, save a bit of the workload for the, for the guys, um, which is all good stuff. Do we want to experiment with this reverse... Um, championship order 
uh, race. You know, maybe we should experiment this year with a race, but not part of the championship. Why not see what it's like by, by the time maybe you get to Silverstone? Why not give it a shot? You'll have had two races in Austria that scored points. You'll have had a race in Hungary, as far as I know, that will have scored points. And you'll have one race in, in Silverstone that will have scored points. So why not do a Saturday uh, reverse championship race as a, to exploit it and see what it's like? And then um, do your qualifying on the Sunday morning for the main race and, and race Sunday afternoon for the, on the second weekend. Because it doesn't, it doesn't have to count towards the championship. But it would, it would be nice, it would be interesting to have a look at it. I don't like artificial races. But at the end of the day, the cars are built at the moment, aerodynamically the cars are built, to be the most performant possible. So that on a one-lap qualifying, in free air, the car has got the most downforce possible and the driver can, can cope with that and you know, do the lap time. If you had a reverse grid, a reverse championship grid, then the cars would have to be built to work better in traffic. Yeah, you're you're going to be taken off with the the cars around you that are, you know, the same sort of level of, of competitiveness. But still, you know, it'd be down to the clever guys that could build a car that would work in turbulence. And I think that would help fix the whole picture of Formula One. That's what we need is something to force the people to design cars that would do that. Now, if we spent this year and had you know, maybe three of those reverse grid races on a Saturday. Not as part of the championship. And if you don't want to take part in it, don't bother. It's up to you. But, you know, hopefully we'd all buy into it and take part in it. Um, and, you know, maybe it'll just turn into Destruction Derby. And that's not what you want. But at least you'll find out properly if it would work, if it is possible, and we'd see if the enthusiasm towards it might change. Um, but not as a part of, the ch- of this year's championship, no. Yeah, certainly any attempt to gather some data on it in some real world examples will only uh, help to inform the future and you know in terms of artificiality it wasn't until monaco 1933 that they uh, came up with qualifying as a way to decide the grid so uh, were you were you working at monaco 33 no it's just before my time actually yeah <laughs> yeah not qu- you're not quite that experienced but yeah um, it's going to be an interesting season though isn't it i think the uh, the important thing is people are just going to be enjoying having having racing back to to watch just as uh, sport is rattling back into life but at least there's been plenty for us to talk about uh, recently in the world of formula one as you said there's been plenty of people who've uh, who've not been sat around twiddling their thumbs because they've been uh, messing about with the rules yeah yeah i'm i'm quite interested to see the difference in uh, the driver's enthusiasm i think um you know playing to an empty uh, grandstand is it's a, it's a different deal you know to to the, the grandstand being full of people and you know whenever you go in the, the podium ceremony then there is well, there's nobody there. It doesn't really matter anymore. Um, what, how that will affect some different some drivers in different ways, I'm sure. But it's um, it is a it is a season that's disrupted. It is a season that we can learn, and you know, recovery from this is going to be long term. It's not short term. This has had a major financial impact on the world, and that's affected all sports. So, at the end of the day, you need to a bit of lateral thinking. I think is necessary. We have that opportunity to do a bit of lateral thinking, but make sure that you get in, you know, maybe 16 championship, if possible, 16 championship counting races, plus maybe a couple of other, I'll call them little gimmicks. I'm not meaning gimmicks by any means, and a couple of other little uh, potential changes that might come in. And, you know, we talk about the reverse championship grid. Why not pick a grid out of the hat for a Saturday race? Why not just put numbers in the hat and pick one out? 
um, and try to see if you know if something comes out of it. So that'll be mixed at least. So there's lots of little things you could bring into it to try to um, look at different solutions to different problems. But I don't think any of those should count towards the championship. Well, it's certainly going to be an interesting season when it gets going, condensed as it is. So thanks very much, Gary Anderson, for your insight into the new rules. As always, we'll be back next week with more from the Gary Anderson F1 show. Do check out the race.com website and don't forget the hyphen. There's plenty of stuff from uh, from Gary on there on the new rules as well, delving into the, the aero impact, how aero testing works, etc. Check out our YouTube channel as well and some of our other podcasts as well, including the Race F1 podcast and Bring Back V10s, which looks at classic F1 stories, which Gary was recently on an episode of. Uh, So do join us next week. We'll be back with more. 